Um, let's get into our final installment of this series that we've been in uh, for the second half of the summer called The Kingdom and I, where we've been looking at different portions in the life of King David and King Saul and trying to figure out how do our lives today connect to their lives back then. I want to look at a psalm to start this one off. Um, let's go, uh, speaking of old school, let's do what the ancient church used to do and not to make you do one more stand up, sit down, but will you stand up with me and can we just read this together? We will do this maybe one time a year, so let's enjoy it and have a good attitude, Zane, when we do it. <laughs> Everyone with me. Be merciful to me, O oh God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. That last line, that's the thing that's really been in, uh, getting me this week. So let's read that last part only one more time. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. You may have a seat. And as you're sitting down, just ask your neighbor, like, do you, do you believe that that's true? I mean, really, like, pretend like we're not inside of a church right now and that you don't know what it says in the Psalms and all you have is what you've seen in your own story. Do you actually believe that when it comes to your purpose, God is the one who fulfills your purpose or is it on you to produce it? Whose responsibility does that fall to? I struggle with this question, to be honest with you. I, I, like, to, I, I like to be active. Less so like, like um, yeah, not physically. Let me clarify. <laughs> I realize you guys are looking at my body going like, do you really, Matt? <laughs> I get it. Um, but I like to create. I like to make. I like to think about things, do different things. I like to have my hands on and see what is possible. In fact, I would say to you, maybe this is hyperbole, but... There's few things that I love more than a blank page. Like whether it's writing a song or writing a sermon, I just get really excited about looking at a blank page and then thinking about all the different things that could come from said blank page. And so I was really excited because I'm in the midst of a few projects right now. I was really excited to go into my therapist's office this past week and tell her how juiced I was about just this, what I love about me. You know what I'm saying? She wasn't as psyched as I was to my shock. After my, like, first opening half-hour rant on what I love, you know, I just love creating, I love making, I, I, I hear you. And, like, being creative is good. Making things that can be healthy, that can be a beautiful way to go through your days. But sometimes, Matt, and I wrote this down, what she said, because I want to make sure I get her words right. Cause sometimes, Matt, I think that you like to enter into this space where anything can happen as a means of escaping the spaces where it feels like nothing is happening. And I said, show me your credentials. You know, have you talked to my wife? Like, what do you know? Sometimes, she said, when it feels like every day is a copy and paste of the day before, when it feels like you are very busy producing, but very rarely making progress, when it feels like your days are defined only by waking up the kids in the morning and then feeding the kids at night. Sometimes, she told me, in spaces like this, you have a tendency to try to produce a purpose 
because you failed to see how purposeful the place is where you are right now. And then she said, well, that's, that's all the time we have this week. And so I have to wait now three more days until she can untangle this emotional hot mess that I've become. But until she does, I have that last line. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I like this psalm not just because of what it says, but because of where David was sitting when he said it. If you have your Bibles in front of you, you will notice at the top of the text, it tells you that David is on the run. He is a refugee on the run when he makes this claim right here. That's where he's writing. And now that's quite the feat when you consider it, what it is that he is saying. Because it's one thing to sing, uh, what's that Carrie Underwood song? Jesus, take the wheel. It's one thing to sing that when you are getting a promotion. But it's another thing entirely to sing it when you're losing your paycheck. David here has having the bottom fall out. Like he, he's not in a good space here. He has a bullseye on his back. He's on the run. Nothing is going his way. He is anointed, but he's on the run. And so we catch up to this moment where David writes this psalm about how not he, but God fulfills the purpose. It's interesting the story in which it comes out of. The story we're going to look at is, is in 1 Samuel 24. And it reads like this. After Saul, that's King Saul, returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel, and they all went looking for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. When the Bible says relieve himself, it does mean relieve himself. That's, that's what it means. Do you need me to clarify any further? Saul is going to the bathroom here. It's important here that you understand the scene. Saul is old. He is vulnerable, and he's going to the bathroom. He's relieving himself. I don't know why I felt like I needed to harp on that point. It's like you really need to get that picture here. But this is, this is where we are right now. Story goes on. <coughs> Thank God. David and his men, while Saul was going to the bathroom, David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men, they all say, this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Do you guys remember when God said that to David? When, when, when David was out doing that one thing in that one place and then God spoke up and said that I will give your enemy into your hands for you to do with as, it never happened. So, so you're not, don't feel like you're an inadequate reader of scripture. This is a falsehood right here. This, I can't find it anywhere. I, I should have brought my diploma to give me a little bit more credibility when it comes to what I'm about to say. But I have looked through all the first Samuel. I have read the commentaries. I've read the scholarly opinions. And as far as I can tell, though I have looked far and wide, there is not one spot where God looks at David and says, at some point soon, I will give the enemy into your hands for you to do with as you wish. He's not in there. I can't find it. It doesn't happen when David gets dragged in from the hills and anointed as the next king. God doesn't say anything there. Not when David rises up and takes down the giant. It doesn't happen there. Not even at the initial points when David is on the run like a refugee. 
God still is silent. It doesn't happen there. There is a reason why these boys are not citing their source because there is no source to cite. God never said these words. Just, it wasn't in the cards. And yet I understand why they are saying them here. I understand why they have been on the run. Holding on to this promise of God that at some point soon, the crown of Saul's will sit on David's head and the kingdom will be established. And here comes an opportunity like no other. Can you still hold on to God's will, God's way, when an opportunity to move the dial presents itself? Can you still be patient with God's will? when there's an opportunity to be productive in your own way, to do what you want, to take the story in your own direction. Opportunity exposes our priorities, does it not? Opportunity pulls the scales back and helps us see what our convictions are are actually made of. I was with some guys from... um, This might be another one of those bathroom stories. You know, like the one I had at Saul, not just in general. Forget it. There's some guys a few weeks ago, though, and we were talking about marriage and uh, dating and relationships in general. But we were starting to talk about all these, these old relationships. And um, one of the guys in the middle of the conversation climbed on top of his high horse and got real high and mighty and started saying how never in all of his days, be it in middle school, in high school, in college, has he ever cheated on anybody. Never done it. He's been faithful this entire time. And he just went on and on about how he's always been pure of heart and committed and faithful. When finally somebody spoke up and said, like, but did you have any other choice? I mean, I've seen the photos of the puka shell necklace and the bowl cut haircut. And so it's great and everything that nobody wanted to. It's great that you didn't get with anybody. But did anybody ever want to get with you? And I said, I don't know. Not that I recall. Like, I don't, I don't think anybody... I don't think anybody did, come to think of it. But it's easy to be faithful to God's will when you don't have the opportunity to do what you want. People talk a lot about overcoming obstacles. We're kind of in that kickoff season, new new year, new you. You know what I'm saying? YOLO type stuff. Everything's a pep talk everywhere you go. A lot of talk about overcoming obstacles. But what about the task of overcoming opportunities? Staying faithful in the small things, even when the opportunities to make progress presents itself. It's just as hard, just as often. I mean, it's easy to say that you will, you know, never take a job for money. It's a little bit different when there's a six-figure paycheck coming your way. It's easy to say and espouse ideas like, I will, I'm a pacifist through and through. I would never even hurt a fly. Different when you run into somebody who's violent. It's, it's easy to say a lot of different things. But what about when the opportunity comes? Will you still say the things you said before? Will you still stand on what you said? Obedience quickly becomes optional when there are opportunities that come close. And for David, his fidelity is being called into check because there's an opportunity here that's presenting him with a choice. Will I pursue God's will in God's way? Well, we'll not take the cheese, even if it's in the trap. And this is where the story, I think it's, it's good, because David does something strange. He, he takes into account what he's hearing the boys all saying as Saul is over in the corner doing what Saul is doing. 
And he recognizes that Saul is vulnerable. Saul's not going to have much of a response right now. Like Saul is tied. This is an opportunity. This is a chance to strike. Maybe these guys are right when they say that this is the moment we've been waiting for. Yeah, I cannot cite the exact moment when God said those words. But it sure feels like that's where the story has been heading the whole time. Maybe I should do something. And then David does something. He gets up. He walks over to King Saul. But instead of killing the king and taking the crown, David ends up just cutting a piece of his clothes off. He takes the corner of Saul's robe off and he walks it back to the boys. What's strange about this is that it says afterwards, David was conscience stricken for taking out a corner of his robe. In the King James Version, it says that David's heart smote him. When's the last time you used smote in a sentence? David's heart smote him. That's the Hebrew word nachach. And it means slice, kill, destroy, inflict pain. David cut the clothes, but somehow along the way he ended up cutting himself. And, and if you think about it logically, which I, I think we ought to do, it doesn't really add up because there are worse moves he could have made. Like this doesn't seem like the most smotable of actions that he took. He made progress and he did no harm, right? I mean, even the top of the, the, the section in my Bible, it labels it in like these heroic terms. David spares Saul's life. Why is he having a crisis of conscience? Why is his heart being smoted over something that just doesn't feel all that wrong? In fact, if you think about it, I mean, if it plays out the way that David clearly is calculating that it will play out, this is going to push him closer. This is going to bring this whole story closer. All it takes is a snip and a snap of the corner of the rope, and he'll be closer into the reality of God's will for his life. What is the harm in doing something like that? What is the problem? A few years ago, um, we were in this place as a community where we had these meetings again and again. We were trying to discern... Uh, who are we trying to be? Like, what is it that God has put on us that we are supposed to bring from within us? Like, what is the call on this community? Who, what's our story? Where are we trying to go? And we said a lot of different things, right? I mean, we're trying to, we're kind of, you know, throwing things at the wall and seeing what will stick. And one of the things that is obvious is that we decided that in a healthy and growing community, if the good news is actually equipping and empowering and edifying our community to be the people that we dream we all are trying to become, then this thing should be a vibrant and growing community. It, it, we should be growing. That, that should be a byproduct. Be it in depth or width, there should be growth that is present. In the midst of these conversations that are happening at church, I get this call from this guy. And he says to me, um, can we get lunch? Now, he had like one foot in the door, one foot out. And one eye that was like very suspicious about everything that we did. And um, so when I went out and got lunch with him, and halfway through the meal, as we're talking, he's asking me about my dreams for the table. Like, what, what kind of community are we trying to become? He said, the reason I wanted to bring you out here is because I have something for you. And he slides across the table a check for 
He says, this is for the table and for you guys to become all that you were born to be. My only condition attached is that if you take this check, you will really take on a new level of uh, worship. I'm talking all Hillsong. I'm talking fog machines. I'm talking the whole light shebang, not just a couple of people singing, but let's fill the stage with a ton of energy and activity and let's make it into something that is crazy. If you take this check, that's my only ask. It's not too big, definitely not small, but just that you would take this cash and invest it in something that dazzles. Now, to be clear, it's not like he was um, asking me to do anything terrible. He wasn't saying, go and destroy all the other churches so people have to come here. He wasn't saying, go out and hire a crowd. You know, you know you can do that. You can buy your own buzz today. It's a side note, but you can actually do that. That's not what he was saying. Invest in the pomp. Could we, you know, sacrifice a little bit of who we are to make that happen? I actually thought about it in some times because in reality, he, he, he wasn't asking me to kill the king. He was asking me just to take a clip off the corner and maybe it would have pushed us closer towards God's will. The problem, however, is that it took me about seven seconds to recognize that it wasn't God's way. That if there is anything about our community that I believe to be one of our convictions is that we will not cut corners. We know who we are and we know what we believe and we won't indulge other things to make progress along the way. And so we said no. Gently, I pushed that check back towards this man. And here's the thing about it that made that pushback so hard is because I know that had we said yes, and had we invested in, in all of these things that the millennials love, his words, not mine, had we done that, it might have worked. I mean, doing it the wrong way can sometimes be the working way. I think that's why obedience can be so hard. Not because we have this human inclination to always do wrong, but because I think we have this inclination to do what works. Like what is going to expedite the process? What is going to make us push this story further down the road? And there's a lot of different things that you can make work if you do it in the wrong way. You can control an entire environment by using your anger. You could shut down a whole conversation by having the loudest voice. You could climb the corporate ladder by cheating, by turning your back on different people. But what will you gain when you get to the top? What will you have sacrificed when you cut that corner? We put it on, um, well, we put it on our social media this past week that we are not going to be playing Bethel music anymore in this church. And the reason why is because every time we use a different song in our cycle here on our selections is that we give licensing fees. And when we found out that Bethel music is supporting, equipping and empowering conversion therapy, a practice that has been proven to be ineffective in its aim and abusive in its tactics, we pulled out and we shut it down. We said we will not partake in that any longer. And we're standing by that. Some people would prefer that we didn't. And so what happened this past week is that when I got messages, be it on social media or in email inbox, um, there are some things that have been said that makes me want to say some things back. Do you know what I mean? Like I got this thing in me where like I will, I still 
at the ripe old age of 34 years old, when I get mad, I still will ball my fists and I just want to start swinging. I don't know why. I know it's dark. This is a safe space. We're family, right? Still, please, this is safe. But I get mad and I just want to start swinging back. And so I am bawling my fists and I am writing some emails back with a bald fist. But then I take a breather and instead of clicking send, I had to click delete. I ended up writing a response, but it wasn't like it first was. It wasn't going to be like that because we don't cut corners. There's no point in responding to critics with hate. There's nothing to alleviate the hate within them. That's not how we do things. That's not what we're trying to be about. We're better than that. We're going to rise above that every time. We don't cut corners. And so I ended up, after getting these different emails, um, I put away my sword because we can't cut off Melchizedek's ear and expect that the kingdom's going to come forth. You remember Jesus at the end of his story. You remember Jesus' own posse as they are following him and it's getting down to the wire and he is looking like he is going to be fed to the lions and you hear Peter, James, all, they're saying, not like this. This isn't how your story is supposed to go. We're supposed to grow some pipes and overthrow the kingdom, take back what should be ours, and then set things right. And Jesus says, yeah, we will do that. We will go, we will pursue shalom and the flourishing of all people, but not like that. We're not going to cut corners to get what we want. We're going to be people of convictions. We're going to go down the narrow road, even if the wide road might get us there sooner. If you read David's story, you get this sense that he understands that no matter what predicament he's in, he gets that where we are called to is more important than where we came from. That's a core thing that he holds in his head. That's why, for example, that the windshield is much bigger than the rearview mirror because where we are going is much bigger than, much more important than where we are coming from. David understands this, but when he cuts the corner of the king's robe, he learns something new. When he got smoted, he picked up a new lesson. As important as it is to know where you are going, as much as it outweighs where you are going as opposed to where you are coming from, what's more important still is how you will get there, who you will become along the way. In the kingdom of God, the ends never justify the means. The means always matter. How you make money means more than the money that you make. How you find success is more important than the success that you find. If you miss your kids growing up so that you can be a winner at your job, did you, did you win? David turns to his men and he says, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hands on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord, and I don't cut corners. That's not who I am. That's not how I'll do this. I will not become something that I'm not in the pursuit of what I want. Can the same be said for you? There's a book by Eugene Peterson, and he the title. I didn't read the book, just read the title. That's all I needed. I think it's actually called 
Christianity is a long obedience in the same direction. Isn't that good? It's a million boring steps of taking the next thing. What's the next right thing? What's the most consistent way that I can carry my character in a world filled with opportunities and obstacles? And now I remember the baseball. Why I asked you to bring it, Lauren? This baseball, I found my kids playing with it outside the other day. And I was like livid. Talk about like getting kids to do your way but doing it in the wrong way. I can scream at my kids to tell them to control their own emotions. Figure that one out. Doesn't make sense. But they're outside throwing this ball around. And this ball used to mean a lot to me because you can't even tell on now. I don't know if they've been slobbering on this ball or Alex Rodriguez's autograph used to be on this ball. And dad, you remember when we got this? Spring training. Don't remember the summer. I should make one up. It sounds spring training. Spring training, 99. You and I. But I'll remember it because I remember throwing this ball to Alex Rodriguez, who was like hero at the time. And I remember how when he sent it back with his John Hancock on it, I thought my life's never going to look the same. At some point, I will sell this ball and be able to live on the couch the rest of my days. That's just true. I mean, it's A-Rod. I got his autograph. But now my kids are rolling it around in the dirt outside. And I care, but I don't care. And it's interesting because you think about A-Rod, and on one hand, I should care. He's hit the fourth most home runs out of anybody in all of baseball history. That's quite the feat. Having an autograph like that, that's that's got some value. Maybe I could be a couch potato. I mean, he got somewhere. But it has no value because of how he got there, because of the steroids because of the corners that he cut. Man had a gift, but instead of trusting in the process, instead of trusting in the giver, he found a corner to cut. And now when we talk about A-Rod, we don't talk about the incredible home run hitter that he was. We talk about what he did to get to where he got. I hope people don't talk about us in the same way someday. I hope we are consistent in the day in, day out grind when people are looking and when they're not. I hope that we have the courage to trust what Paul says in Philippians. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Because my job is to be faithful. It is God's job to do the fulfilling. May that be enough for us tonight. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you, God, for being faithful. Thank you, God, for being our fulfiller. I think there's a lot of different ways we try to make our purpose, our story come to life. And I understand we all have agency and responsibilities in ways that we are choosing to live out our days. But God, do not let us forget that you are the one who fulfills our purpose. We are the ones who are faithful. Give us to not cut corners. In Christ's name, we all pray together. Amen. When we come together as a community at the table on Sunday nights, we remember our Jesus who didn't cut corners and who stayed in obedience to God 
to the point of death on a cross. And on the night before Jesus died, he sat down with a group of his friends and he broke bread and he said, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which has been broken for all of you. When you eat it, do this in memory of me. And likewise, after they ate, he took a cup and poured wine into it. And he said, this is a cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, and it will be shed for all of you. When you drink it, do this in memory of me. And so at the table, we practice obedience by coming and doing just that. We come and we bring our good and our bad and our ugly and our beautiful. And we remember our Jesus who loves us exactly as we are tonight. And we invite you to do so as the music plays by coming up to the front um, and taking the bread and dipping it into the cup. There will be stations up here with gluten-free right here in the middle. And I hope that you can come join us in this holy practice and just remember how loved you are exactly as you are by our sweet Jesus. Will you pray with me the prayer that Jesus taught us? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.